All right, Neil, that was a pretty good episode chatting to Jason. Um, lots of new concepts, and I know you related to the rugby stuff a lot. No, 100%. Man. He sounds like an amazing guy, very down to earth. Um, pretty much had a crack at everything he's done. So, mm. which is a good, interesting story and stuff, a lot of learnings. But, you know, the other part, obviously, is sidetracked with the rugby and sports. So, uh, awesome bloke. So that's what we're all about, anyway, bro, sports. Um, just, just the fact that he tried so many different things, tried and succeeded at so many different things. Um, and, you know, the things he spoke about with money and meaning and how they intersected and yeah. they found something really great in there as well with him and his wife. I thought it was pretty cool, man. I think that was a very good, concept, interesting concept, the way he described it, money and meaning and the balance in between it. I think that's the kind of the basis for a lot of his success, just trying mm. to find the meaning behind it, obviously, and the money obviously follows. But, um, yeah, like him having a go at all these other different projects that he's done, um and it's not just one thing it's all diverse and even even him diverting from what he studied to jumping and following his passion that's interesting how he's just talked about that journey and just the persistence of it all and the resistance that's right. the brilliant element mm. that he's got um so it's not it's not as easy as it makes it sound it's it's actually a lot of traits around an individual and what you learn throughout your journey mm. one of the good things he said was working with a co-founder that's married so i think we should get married bro <laughs> Mate, we hang out already that much might as well be hey look thanks for jumping on jason myself and neil you know we best mates but we also work together and we just like getting people on and learning heaps of new things and cool things from people and I think just looking at your journey, we were talking before as well, just reading through some of what you've done and how you've been able to kickstart a few things. Um, pretty inspiring for us. Um, so, you know, good to be able to chat to you, get some insights and see kind of the drivers that have motivated you and stuff like that as well. Um, one, one thing I will ask, mate, I heard a nice little snippet on a podcast of yours of what you guys, yours, you and your wife were doing before you kind of kicked off this whole G Diapers initiative. And you had some pretty cool insights there about what you were doing, what your wife was doing, and how now that's oh, yeah, kind yeah. of aligned. Um, tell yeah. us a bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, we, um, my journey out of school was I was just totally fixated on Japan. So I became a Japanese interpreter and translator, and this is like the late 80s. So I think my HSC year was 1987, the fantastic crash. I think it was on the day of my economics exam, I think. <laughs> I sort of tore up the, the exam paper and said, well, that's useless. Um, but I was a stockbroker in Tokyo for Nomura Securities. So Nomura at the time was the biggest broking firm in the world. And it was an experience where I could use my language and we made a heap of money, but it was meaningless, right? So there was lots of money and no meaning. And so I came back to Australia, retrained as a teacher, became a Japanese teacher at a high school lots of meaning and no money, right? So this whole dance began of like, how do you have a life of meaning and money? Hmm. And then I met my now wife, then girlfriend, and she was on the same kind of trip. She went to University of Toronto, she's Canadian, and yeah. um, she went to Zanzibar and worked for the, for the UN doing HIV and AIDS research, you know, back when we had that pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and incredibly meaningful, but no money. And she came out to Australia for a conference, stayed, met a guy on a park bench in the Botanic Gardens who had this idea for a telecommunications company. And she said, oh, you know, when, when Telstra deregulated in Canada, friends of mine at college created the business. And if you do it this way, 
it can be really pro- profitable. So she ran a business. She started the business and sold it very successfully, but it was meaningless. Yeah. Uh, very meaningless. Like it was a great financial outcome. Anyway, we met and we sat and said, how do you make a life of meaning and money? We dated. We dated 200 times. We wrote a book called Great Dates, a romantics guide to Sydney, oh, which is great goodness. writing. But it was so much fun researching with so many tax write-offs. Every time we went to dinner, it's like, oh, keep the receipts. We're just researching. But we had like cheap dates, expensive dates, courses for couples. So we learned how to cook and dance. And it's a miracle yeah. we're still together. But that book, we published the first one and we got some media. But we had an expensive dates chapter. So a chapter of outlandish dreaming dates but uh, the PA to the CEO of a really big ASX 100 company rang and said I'm sick of organizing my boss's birthday could you organize page 76 and I said I'll just patch it through to our event management department I'm like can't pick up the phone (laughs) that that became two's company two's company boutique event management which we should really start up again was um, once in a lifetime events for high net worth individuals and it was just us sitting on Bondi Beach with a blank piece of paper and we realized that it seems like the more money people have, the less creativity they have, which is fantastic. <laughs> Cause we're like, what, what do you like? What, you know, give us some tidbits about your wife or your husband and we'll create an event that yeah. you'll never forget. And so our first client, we pitched three events and he, she took all three. It's like a hundred thousand dollars. And we just amazing. made stuff. It was OPM, right? Other people's yeah. money. We had no idea what we we're doing, but it was, it was obviously before Uber and everything else. So we could go to like a restaurant like icebergs and say yeah. the client loves your restaurant and they love Ayers Rock. So what's it going to cost to recreate your restaurant for a couple in Ayers Rock? And the first 10 times, the owner's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, no, no, just what, what's the number? Yeah. $20,000, done. And then it's like, how much does it cost to get a G5 from Sydney to Ayers Rock? What's the number? And so you, it was the best business. Anyway, That's crazy. It was fun, but again, not much meaning. But mm. once you date 200 times and you, you date 200 times, typically the next thing that happens is you have a kid. Yeah. That's what happened to us. And we read a statistic that there was a cup of oil in every nappy, mm. that one nappy goes in landfill for 500 years. And we said, what it was, our kid, we're going to leave our kids with this mess. Yeah. That's when we got on the journey of nappies. So a big departure from Japanese, but we found IP in Tasmania, licensed it to the rest of the world. Yeah. Clever, plastic-free nappy technology. Moved to Portland, Oregon. Um, <laughs> That, that's pretty on there and off we went that was a long answer sorry no no it's good rewind that back to a bit how did it all click so when you went into nappies right yeah. so was that a gradual year-long discovery was it just like a you know brain light moment that it was pretty light it was literally it's still on our website like one day over breakfast we read the statistic there's a cup of oil in every nappy and it's like that's yeah. insane one child goes through five thousand nappies yeah it's like, what? And so then we were using reusable nappies, but mm. they're not, they don't work that great. So we yeah. found this product that is so clever, but it wasn't massively marketed. So we thought, oh, what if we got the patents for that? Yeah. And we were thinking, could we partner with the company? But then we ended up acquiring the rights to the rest of the world, but, but the company wanted to keep Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. So that meant we had to leave. So we had like a two-year-old and we're pregnant and we're like, oh yeah, we'll go to America. How hard can that be? Like, <laughs> um, but we got work visas and moved and raised capital, raised angel capital, raised VC capital. Yeah, built this brand. Yeah, it was really fun. <laughs> I can see, I can see Neil's brain ticking, and he's going to go into some business questions. Oh, okay. but I'll, I'll, I'll add, I'll add some context. I've just had a kid, 
Oh, um, and I, was, I was actually, well, not just a year ago, but I was talking to my wife because he's still in the nappy stage yeah. uh, half an hour ago. And I was telling him the stat, you know, there's a cup of oil in each nappy. She's like, what do you mean a cup of oil? Yeah. And then I think you were saying 250 million nappies or something uh, mm-hmm. get used a day. And, you know, it's astounding. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just kind of changed her straight away as well. And we'll come to that later about how you can mm-hmm. talk to people that, you know, encourage them through the circular economy. But Neil, you go yeah. And I was listening to your story. Like it sounds like everything you do, you end up making a business out of it. You go, it it's 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 clinical. It's yeah. disgusting, Neil. It is clinical. <laughs> Everything's a money making opportunity. Everything. <laughs> Which, we're thinking of franchising our kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you know, then I look at me and Kev on the flip side. We sit there, we come up with so many ideas, and we clinically don't do anything with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to go, what's what's that process that actually gets you from going you know this is a good idea like we sit there and go hey this is a great idea and then we continue sipping our beers and forget about it I what goes that process yeah. like, to kind of go this is what i do this is the steps we'll take and you know the funding element of it all like and we just go i'm gonna back it like i'm gonna have a crack at it yeah mm. and to be clear i just want to say the title of your podcast is brilliant so i i host a podcast with an american friend and we just wanted to work together and the we've done about 30 episodes and he thinks to have a crack is one of the greatest phrases of all time. The other one is um, fuckwit. And, and we, we're going to create, we, a real fuck, the, the fuckwittery.com is available. And I just want to create a creative agency called the fuckwittery. I don't even know what we do, but it's going to be awesome. I want polo shirts with the fuckwittery on it. Anyway, um, it, I think it started when we, uh, so I'm from Sydney. My wife was kind of from, from Canada, didn't know Sydney well. First date. I went all out and did this really big elaborate date. And then the next week she responded and she had to do some research and it was kind of tricky. And, and then we, we were having breakfast with friends right here and they said, God, you should write a book about all these dates. Cause we would, sorry, I jumped every week after that, we did a different date to kind of challenge ourselves. And then a friend said, God, you should write a book about that. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we should write a book about it. And that's kind of what happened. Similarly with the nappies, it's like, there's a big market problem here. And plastic then was nothing. Like our VP of marketing in America, when Kim and I like, this is 2005. So mine back to 2005, MySpace was huge. YouTube didn't exist. Mark Zuckerberg was still trying to pull chicks in first year uni um, (laughs) and not created Facebook. So it was really early days, but plastic waste was not on the agenda. So um, we were very early on that, but we just sensed into something. So and I think having a partner in crime, I think I mean, my friends think I'm insane that we work together like 24-7. But it's just kind of a, like if I had a founder that wasn't my wife, I might never see my wife. Yeah. It's kind of a funny thing. I do do a lot of long distance running to stay sane. But yeah, so it's kind of a unique setup. I don't think I answered your question very well, Neil. I just <laughs> think we have a go. I think a lot of it is discipline as well. I mean, as soon as you said you're a runner... I know you yeah. have discipline because uh, that's, that's something we don't have. And we, we have some pretty good leaders in our network who yeah. we work with who just meticulously run every day or yeah. if they're doing something, they'll meticulously do that discipline. And I think, you know, just hearing your story, it seems like you have a lot of discipline around how you achieve yeah. and execute uh, a lot of things, which is great. Yeah. yeah like, definitely right. You're right, Kevin, the discipline part around it. Like I said, when you go back to... You know, chalk and cheese, what you're saying is when me and Kev talk about it, we just go, yeah, that's great. We don't actually follow through. We don't have that discipline to kind of go well, <laughs> down and approach it. Um, that, that's the kind of thing that's fascinating about your story. You just pick it up and you run with it. I think the big thing for us, it's got to be fun and yeah. there's got to be some meaning behind it, back to that original theme. And yeah. I think with the two's company business, it was fun, but didn't quite have the meaning. It was just a bit of a laugh. 
Yeah. But now we feel like um, the circular economy has helped us frame how we want to spend our lives. So G Diapers is a good example. And then I've just been brought in to be the CEO of another business called Meal Pass, which is a US-based business that's helping <clears throat> restaurants get back on their feet and uh, reducing food waste and feeding the, the hungry. Yeah. And so I don't know. I think we were both brought up with a sense that you have a go, have a crack. It's Honestly, it's your entire podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so tell, tell us about this one concept. So this, like I said, is pretty new to us, a circular economy. We know it in concept, but just the phrase itself and I guess seeing people that are passionate about it um, is new to us just because we don't explore down the whole sustainability route as much. Yeah. Tell us about it. Tell us how it came yeah. about. Sure. So I'm at the end of my first year of a PhD in the circular economy, looking specifically at the transition to a circular economy in our category, in nappies, which sounds yeah. strange, but as a young father, you'll know, it's hidden in plain sight. Every yeah. baby needs to use 5,000 nappies and it's a plastic waste disaster. We Sustainability is a broad concept, is one of those terms that's been around for a long time. And it's a strange word. If you think about your relationships with your your, your significant other having a sustainable relationship sounds really boring right like <laughs> jesus do we is that what the goal is sustainable <laughs> so i've always thought linguistically that was a, a challenge yeah. the circular economy started maybe 30 years ago and it really came out of resource efficiency research and if you think about the industrial revolution we started we we, we started sort of early 1900s where ford and others created a linear really a linear kind of economy where we take, make and waste. We yeah. take resources from the ground, we make products and then we throw them in the in landfill. So it's linear. Mm. So yeah. it's cradle to grave is another way of thinking about it. Yeah. And we've gotten to a point where I think we're using four planets worth of resources now. Like we're in big trouble. Mm. And so the circular economy is a response to the linear economy in that, as you can imagine, if you can create products that are regenerative, so in our case, our nappies are made of cornstarch, we can have them used, we collect, we compost and we sell the compost. We actually monetize the waste. Mm -hmm. um, that's the very broad sense of what circular is. It's regenerative. We are the only species on earth that creates waste as a concept, like the whole concept yeah. of anywhere but in our species and we are drowning in it. So Indonesia, 30% of their marine waste is nappies. It's oh, wow. crazy. Just you know, I would have heard of all these stats. No, they're, they're yeah. crazy stats, Neil. Yeah. <laughs> Neil so that's, Neil's, yeah. Neil's from Fiji, actually. So just oh. hearing about marine waste is uh, yeah. We actually we're doing doorstep. Yeah, we just finished some work in Tuvalu. We, we were speaking with right. Kiribati uh, yesterday. Fiji's there. Fascinating program. They've got fifteen South Pacific countries doing a big piece of research as a block of countries around nappies mm. um, to really understand what the possibilities are. But uh, yeah, wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so you obviously didn't study circular economies or anything related to this. How did how did you get into it? So obviously you found a passion, and then you've just gone all into it, which for me is just astounding. Because we're <laughs> we're finance people. If someone had to tell us, you know, you had to explore this concept, and now you're going to go all in on it, I probably couldn't trust myself to do something like that. But you did it, and you know, you're passionate about it, and now you're doing your PhD and everything on it. And you're probably an expert from what it looks like on the web anyway. I think um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I cut and pasted a heap of big words and I'm just crying that no one asked me some tricky questions. I think I did follow my passion and it is quite burgeoning. Yeah. Um, and I really thought my future would be in Japanese. So I, I did mm -hmm. a master's in Japanese sociolinguistics um, 20 years ago. And that's when I got my 
interpreting qualification and did work with um, Rugby Australia and I still do work with Rugby Australia and with the Japanese Rugby Union and with the Japanese Olympic team and the Australian Olympic team. So I thought my world was language and now we've gotten into this because we kind of followed this meaning and money thing. Mm. And it's funny because the PhD is actually very much a sociolinguistic thing. So if you think about sustainability, you think about the silver bullets, you've got the Mike Cannon Brookses and the others who are, you know, we're going solar, we're going wind. So the power generation piece is there. So we've got the technology part of it. Um, I'm interested in the sociological part of it as there's a huge cognitive dissonance. So Kevin and Neil, I've scared you to death with these nappy statistics. And if in a survey I asked 100 people, would you make the green purchasing choice, Hmm. the environmentally friendly purchasing choice, 95% say yes, but 5% actually follow through. Yeah, That's problematic. And if all of us studied economics at uni, which we might have done, the assumption is the consumer, it's really interesting, the language is fascinating. We're not citizens, right? We're consumers. What do we do? We consume. Yeah. And the, the theory of economics is we have, we're, we, we have access to all information. We act rationally, which is hilarious. And, um, uh, and we have agency. We have, we have agency over our kind of our realm. And that's actually not how the world works. And in sustainability, you see that over and over again. We keep thinking, oh, consumers can just change their disposition or attitude about something and we all be green. It's like, actually, that's not true. And so the, the thrust of my research is around looking at it through a new lens called social practice theory, looking at yeah. consumption, not as the moment of drinking that beer, but all the practices that go around. And as a consumer, I'm not at the center of that. I'm just one pillar of three pillars. Um, so as you can say, as you can tell, I'm really interested in this field. But yeah, it's been kind of a lifelong thing. So I'm now 51. Yeah, and I didn't study environmental things at uni. I studied economics and Japanese. Yeah. Um, but I think I just followed. I don't know. It's weird. It's a bit like Steve Jobs, who said at the end of his life, "You can't figure it out going forward. Yeah. You look back and then you connect the dots." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his, his, you know, he went and he took college. He took college credit classes. Didn't get a degree from Reed College up in Portland in Japanese calligraphy. Yeah, And he said that then led him to create an incredible um, set of um, fonts for Apple and the whole design aesthetic. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't have done it deliberately going forward, right? He didn't yeah. leave school and go, oh, I'll study Japanese and this will lead to that. So it's sort of a strange retrospective thing. Yeah. But I think the guiding compass is just following your passion or your mm. new intuition. And just, yeah, go, go all in there. <laughs> Which is challenging, right? Because in the yeah. middle of it, you're like, oh, like I just, I abandoned, I totally abandoned 12 complete years of focusing on Japanese. Like that Japanese language proficiency test was a complete bastard. And I'm like, okay, I'm really going to walk away from that and do this nappy thing. Yeah. You go, you go, you do that. <laughs> I think my parents today are like, I'm sorry, you're a nappy executive, really. Right. Yeah. You know, my mates at Namura now are like, what happened to you? <laughs> on that one. I, was, I don't know if you know, I'm going to just take this off a tangent just because you mentioned it. Obviously, you've been doing a bit of work with the rugby side and the, you know, yeah. Fruitfree from Fiji and stuff. I was going to say, you must be a oh. master in telling Japanese that Fiji is going to win gold again. Oh my gosh. So I'm a reserve for the Australian Olympic team. And I just got, because the, as an interpreter, and I just got an email from them saying, you know, they've all landed in Tokyo and they probably won't need me, which I'm like, I was, I was sort of half bummed, but then I'm half, like, it's pretty, it's not, not great up in Tokyo. Like, uh, yeah. I've been in all the briefings and like, there is, as someone 
so I went up to the Rugby World Cup for my 50th birthday with seven yeah. mates and had this two-week tour of Japan, which was terrifying. I think the liver is still recovering. <laughs> but this, this thing in Tokyo for the games, I worked on the Sydney games for the Japanese team, and it was just amazing, right? The village and you're taking them around Sydney and they're having extraordinary. Um, the setup in Tokyo, I mean, you're in, you're in kind of lockdown, you know, we had um, Steve Solomon, who's a 400 meter runner, and then Bronte Campbell on our podcast. And I mean, they're excited, but they're also like, they're going to be, Steve Solomon's going to be running a 400 in a completely empty stadium. Yeah. Bronte Campbell doing the swimming. She goes, it's less of an issue, but still, as you walk out onto the platform on the deck, that crowd can be really important. Now, mm-hmm. admittedly, while you're swimming, you don't really hear it. But um, so, um, yeah, I, I volunteer for the Rugby Australia and for the Japanese Rugby Union. And what's great about the sevens that comes every year is Fiji somehow is always next to the Japanese. And it's awesome because the singing's so good. And the Japanese, they're, they're minnows. And we just sit there quietly and sitting there singing, going, oh, that's so good. <laughs> so speak, speaking about these guys that are good man- managers, um, Jason, obviously through times like this with COVID and pandemics affecting obviously teams interacting with each other and supply chains and stuff. How have you found kind of managing your own business, um, interacting with your teams and leaders and stuff across the world as well? Has that been a bit different? Yeah. I mean, we left the States six years ago Hmm. to get our kids into school here. We felt, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but um, it's not, it's serious. I wanted my kids to play rugby and cricket and it's hard to do that in America. (laughs) And I did start, I'm actually on the board of Rugby Oregon. So I'm I'm involved with USA Rugby and we started a youth rugby team there, but I just, you know, I wanted the kids to go to the school I went to. And so we moved home and convinced our American board that we could do it from Australia, which at the time was like, you guys are fucking crazy. And it was back then it was Skype. So Zoom is so much better. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So we're used to working remotely. The last, 16 months has been brutal. We've had to apply for a whole bunch of the US version of JobKeeper. We've had to lay mm. off a bunch of people. We're really in a rebuild. And, you know, if we think about that 17 years, 2008, that recession, depression in America was just nearly killed us. Yeah. Our biggest customer is Babies Are Us, which is a smaller retail here, but it's the engine of baby retail in America. They went bankrupt. Huh. And we knew they were going to go bankrupt. And we had about $3 million of business there. So we made the call to get out early which is really painful because I kept surviving and I'm like, yeah. fuck. But we wanted to get out because if we'd stayed in and been stuck in a bankruptcy, yeah. we might never have gotten our inventory out. Mm. So that was hard. Um, we had to buy out our VC. That was kind of hard. Um, but last year with the pandemic, we had a supply chain issue where we, the face, we, have a same, we have the same material as in, our, in face masks. Yeah. So we had a complete block on right, the supply okay. chain. We've managed to kind of rebuild, but really focus, um, you know, in Neil's country of birth area with the mm. South Pacific because of the need there. You know, the island of Tuvalu is a foot above sea level mm. and they're drowning in plastic waste. So we're kind of relaunching the business with this new product, which is a product as a service, which is a very much a circular economy thing. So as a brand, we sell, but we collect our own mess and we can monetize the mess. So what's fascinating is in Tasmania, the patent holder has has this going sells the products at child care centers in hobart mm. violia collects the nappies and the food waste and organic waste city of hobart does the composting and they sell it for 75 dollars a cubic meter so they're making the money off our waste which is kind of cool yeah. we had a meeting yesterday in lombok in indonesia they have a huge problem with they don't have enough compost and they're an agrarian country 
So we can sell the compost that we make up there, not for $75 a cubic meter, but for like $400 a cubic meter. So it becomes a fascinating double revenue business. Mm. We sell nappies and make money. We sell compost, we make money. But as you can tell, a full service business is really involved, right? We don't just sell it on Amazon and say, see you later. It's like, we need reverse logistics. We need composting partners. We need regs to deal with composting. So it's more involved, but our bet is it's the way of the future. So the EU, their new waste regulations, it's all about what's called extended producer responsibility. Yeah, the manufacturer yeah. has to take back their crap. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's pretty interesting just to um, hear you talk about it. I'm interested as well from a customer perspective. So most businesses, if you're trying to get a customer on board, you're trying to convince them that they need your product. Yep. You're not only convincing a product a customer that they need your product, but you're trying to get them to change their mindset. Yeah, and, and that's that. That's you know, the really move towards a different kind of different way of living. Yeah. Um, are you hoping that through your business, the early adopters kind of jump on, and then you kind of have this network effect, or what's the kind of uh, how you kind of oh, yeah, approaching that? Great question. And, and that's sort of what I'm trying to explore in the PhD, but also in the business. So hi, the hypothesis is emerging economies, okay, the Tuvalu's, Fiji's, Indonesia's of the world will yeah. get to circularity before the developed world yeah. because they're closer to their indigenous roots. They have a greater sense of community. They have a greater mm -hmm. sense of the actual environment. So, yeah. you know, our pre-pilot study in Indonesia, when we said, and we, it's a beach community, 130 families, and it takes you 20 minutes by boat to cut through all the nappy waste to get to the marina. Goodness. I mean, it is just wall-to-wall -wall nappies. And we said to them in this pre-pilot survey, do you see the issue here? Are you interested in a solution? They're like, oh, if there's a solution, that's great. We just have never had a solution. Mm. Um, so we think that consumer's very energised. Then we have the problem of the delta in price. We use cornstarch. Plastic is the cheapest thing in the world. So our yeah. nappies are more expensive. Yeah. Then we work with the community and, we, and they say, well, hang on a minute. We have so much plastic waste, you know, Coca-Cola bottles and what have you, mm. and we've got a plastic bank. So we can shrink the delta to price parity. If the, if the community is willing to collect a couple of kilograms of plastic waste a week and sell it into the plastic bank, then we're back to even. Mm. So it's a very interesting, clever model where we're engaging the community. We're collectively solving this nappy waste problem. Um, we're cleaning up the big polluters mess as well. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, and away you go. But if you translate that into Sydney or London or New York, it's like, oh my God, how would that even work? How does it work with the retailers? So we're starting with developing emerging economies. We've got a pilot coming up in London, which will be really interesting to look at behavior. But we think younger parents your age are more tuned in than my generation. Yeah. We, my generation, are so addicted to low-cost, high-convenience. I mean, mm -hmm. we really did deliver Amazon the great gift. I mean, Amazon is just <laughs> the pinnacle of, of that, you know, how much more convenient. In America, you can get one-hour delivery windows, you know. Okay. My sense is that, you know, my kids are 18 and 16, that generation and the one a little bit older, they're getting intuitively that this you can't just keep doing that. And I look That's at things right. like keep cups, you know, keep cups, you take your own cup to the cafe. That's a small thing. It's kind mm -hmm. of a big thing. It's kind yeah. of like you got to do a few things from a practice point of view. You've got to remember to take it and the lid. Is it clean? Okay. Yep. It's clean. Take it. Coffee. I've got to wash it out again. Okay. So there's a little, there's steps there, which for me isn't intuitive, but so we hope generationally the wind, there's tailwinds for us. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's no question consumer behavior is so difficult. And the easiest thing to do is come up with a product that is lower cost and more convenient. And that is the anathema of sustainability. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's hard. Yeah. I was just even reflecting on, because I'm from India and every time I used to go back, I've noticed that how they've treated waste differently as well. Yeah. Back, back, actually back when I was younger, everything was more sustainable. Everything was biodegradable. People were recycling a lot more and reusing stuff. But the last couple of times because of the emergence of plastic, yeah. And that's kind of gone to the third world countries as well. It's just plastic everywhere and people don't know where to dump it. It's just becoming a mess. I feel like they, because they've just come out of that, they're closest to going back to, you know, being a circular economy yeah. again because they know it's still familiar in their DNA kind of thing. I think what's fascinating is emerging economies, whether, you know, whether it's Fiji, Tuvalu, India, Indonesia, they want the trappings of the middle class. Yeah. And so it's a very delicate balance to say to these communities, no, no, no. You go back to using cloth nappies. You use reusable nappies. Yeah. They, they work like terribly, but no, you got to say, and here we are in the developed world going, ha ha, like it's That's very right. interesting sociologically to kind of grapple with that. So we hope that the thing that we're doing and what we found in Tuvalu and Indonesia, it's a leapfrogging. Mm. So they, they avoid the mess. So if you think about Africa, they never had copper wires with phones. They went straight to mobile and they were the first country and still the leading country in SMS banking. So that's really interesting technologically. So our hope is there's some kind of a leapfrogging to circular economy. I mean, one of the simplest things is there are regulations globally in the developed world that prevents you from composting human waste, which is sort of okay. And we get it from a mad cow disease 20 years ago. In, the, in emerging economies, they don't have that. They're like, fuck that. We can, you know. And so why it's been easier for us to get traction in developing countries is that you don't have to, you know, mess about with old school regulations. So That's right, anyway, yeah. we'll That's, see. I did another Africa thing, like, you know, so we probably see, you set up a new foundation and the and the jump is going to be better. So yeah, in that way, yeah. Mm. Just before, just before we let you go, Jason, one big thing we like doing is getting learnings from challenges or failures that people have had in their uh, <laughs> lives and, you know, their careers. Um, you've tried a lot of things, so I know that there would have had to be challenges there somewhere or you might have to be the luckiest person in the world. But mm-hmm. are there any good uh, learnings that we both can take and also, you know, people that are listening to this might be able to take as well? Yes, so many. I hope I haven't painted the picture that's all been easy, breezy. It's been brutally hard from, you know, many times. And, you know, moving away from family when we had young kids, Mm. you know, that was just hard, but we just were so passionate about the company. Yeah. Um, What's a good learning? Um, I think you get rewarded for um, persistence. And I know it sounds very blah, but I think it's really true. I think... um, we're in a society that it's okay to quit. And I'm suddenly thinking if you've really found something and it's really got you mm. to stick with it and find different ways to cut it. Like we, we were on a massive growth tear financially. I mean, it was just the business was on fire and we just ran into two or three or four massive hurdles. Like it was like, mm. oh my God, we're going to lose everything. And so Kim and I had to sit and look at each other and say, are we still committed? And the trick with us is we're married so it's different if we were just founders and one of us was like, you know what, I'm done. Yeah. And that would have been fine. But it was a really tough conversation to say, are you in? Yeah. Are you in? Are you still in? 
you know, we're off the payroll. Are we still going to be in? Yep, we can find somewhere else to make some money in this thin time. Yeah. So that if you've got that passion or that intuition that this is the thing you're going to do, then that persistence comes through and then you sort of become indestructible. So this pandemic is hard, but 2008, we should have died. Mm. Oh, our, our first in, one of our investors died the day before funding. $3 million check. Yeah, we should have right. died. We should have been on a plane on the way home. And our angel investor in Sydney saved us with an mm. email. We emailed them at 11 at night and said, uh, bad news. Um, yeah, that's a different story for a different time. But we reflect on that hard stuff and go, oh, if we can get through that, we can get through a pandemic. That, that, yeah. that, that won't be a problem. <laughs> as, as someone used to say, never waste a good pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's amazing just seeing, you know, you being able to bounce back up. You obviously take those learnings into every yeah. different adventure. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, I, f- I feel like our generation, even generations younger, sometimes we're just spoiled to expect results straight away. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah it's, that's true. It's something, yeah, I, you're I think right, it's, it takes it's, time. In this instant economy of, you know, having stuff delivered to your door or that's true. if you want an yeah. answer, you Google it. Um, so, you know, just hearing stories of that just helps us to stay on the path. And yeah, and I think sport and, helps, having played lots of sport and reflecting oh, on yeah. what sport teaches you. I've always thought this. I think sport taught me more than anything else. Like yeah. I had good school teachers, but playing sport and then watching sport and watching how teams, like I think of the Wallabies now, like my, I've got a group of seven mates on WhatsApp and we're all of that generation that knew what the Wallabies could be and we're yeah. looking at it now sort of suicidal. It's like yeah. imagine imagine the recovery day yesterday. What's the conversation? Yeah. We just lost to a fifth division French team. Hmm. Like, what do you do? And so anyway, I, I find sport such a great metaphor um, yeah, yeah. to deal with that adversity. So, yeah. yeah pre- preaching to the crowd there. Yeah. That's what me, Kev, like I said, we've, we actually even, we've got a side project that we started as well. Like we're doing a, um, like you said, pandemic brings opportunities. We thought last year we started off this, um, we tried to do a, a docu-series pretty much. If you saw the test, Amazon, we did that and translated to our park cricket version. Oh so, yeah, so we've done that because we've we've always you know we've got a whole bunch of good mates and like I said, the basis of us is sport. We have personalities and culture within it, and then um, yeah, like we've learned a lot of things through sport, and then we've go you know what let's look back and let's start making a little docu series about our own personal local cricket version of um, park cricket. That is so, so yeah. cool. We I'm um that journey now. Yeah, it's funny. We um I don't know if you see can see <laughs> that. Oh, yeah. yeah. right. <laughs> we we. We're really close with a uh, Mark Nicholas, who was the cricket commentator Hi. for Channel Nine, and nice. he would stay here in our little apartment in Bondi. And so, for the last ten years, he'd come out every summer, and we really got to know him. And so, we've been more engaged with cricket, even though we're living in America. Yeah. And actually, when we lived in America, the kids went to a fantastic school. Quick story, sorry, and no, I know you got to go. Um, but the, the summer holidays is massive in America, and this yeah. school was very academic and said, you know, the summer holidays is going to be shorter because uh, we want to do more act- academics. And so what happened was a lot of the kids were engineers from Intel. So Portland's biggest employer was Intel and Nike. Yeah. Intel engineers who were typically many Indians, their sons yeah. would go to the same school as our kids. And so, of course, in Portland, they had this massive cricket tournament. <laughs> they had teams and That's Sunday crazy. cricket and I was in heaven and the kids were playing cricket every Sunday. Yeah. And their American mates are like, what are you doing? Because it was Indian, you know, they were eating beautiful Indian home-cooked food. It was just amazing we're having this full-on Indian um, experience in Portland, Oregon. And, yeah. uh, and it's funny, to this day, they, they're so connected to the Indian part of the cricket thing. Um, 
I don't know how I got into that, but um, <laughs> park cricket, I think, is brilliant. Yeah, no, I think I think what you're doing is really cool, and the culture around the cricket, I think, is yeah. so cool. Mm. Um, it's great. Def- definitely a lot of learnings. Hey, um, G diapers, can you get that in Australia in stores here? You can't because we don't own the rights to it. But if you go to Eni double E N double um, that's the Australian patent holder, so you can buy the product and they ship out of Tasmania. Okay, so you cool. can do that. Yeah. Awesome. Because um, I was telling my wife and she was like, I don't think I've seen that in stores. Yeah. Yeah. We'd have to move to Fiji. We can get it up there. I'll <laughs> <laughs> we'll try and pass it by her. <laughs> but thanks so much, man. I know we didn't have enough time. I really want to talk about meal pass another time as well. That's fine. No that, problem. that little adventure. Yeah. Um, heaps of little nuggets of wisdom in here. That yeah. Well, good luck with your, your side gigs and everything. It's always, I think it's where the side gigs is where all the fun is. Yeah, and I think right, it's kind yeah. of cool when the side gig becomes the gig gig. Yeah, yeah, we're the best thing. We're hoping so. We've been hoping for five years. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Stick with it. We'll get there, mate. We're, still, we're still having a crack at it. We'll get there. Good, good. Awesome chat, chatting to you, Jackson. Yeah, great chatting to you too. Go, go to Fiji, boys. Go Pacifica. Yeah, hundred percent. Be cheering for them. <laughs> <laughs>